Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor. I'm a podcast host. I work on a farm. I do a lot. Um, But I'm really concerned about science communication and the way that we choose to discuss the facts with the public and try to be more effective in that. And today we're going to talk about someone who's done a wonderful job at helping bridge that divide, mostly by providing good information for the folks who are in the middle to really help determine who to trust about critical information. Recently, it's been mostly about COVID. So it's been a a very effective communication effort on YouTube that has really assisted a lot of understanding about uh, the the true nature of what's happening with COVID. So we're speaking with Dr. Dan Wilson. He's a molecular biologist at Eurofins, but he's mostly known as the host of Debunk the Funk, which is a YouTube channel that you must subscribe to. So welcome to the podcast, Dan. Hi, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, this is great. I'm, I am so excited because I've been watching your videos and I actually was very enthusiastically told to watch your videos and was uh, you have quite a following and it's really excellent. So I really want to drill into this a little bit. Um, when Let's start, though, at a little bit at the beginning. I've really appreciated your YouTube channel, and it's been a really effective way to talk about some of these current issues, especially around COVID. But uh, something that you said on there, or at least one episode you posted, said that you weren't always the best critical thinker in the world, and uh, you had some issues with some conspiracies. So what was the story on that? When I was younger, uh, I kind of went onto the internet, went onto YouTube, and got sucked into the conspiracy world. I watched a documentary called Loose Change, which is about 9-11 conspiracies, and I, I fell hook, line, and sinker. I kind of became obsessed, which is a little embarrassing. But, you know, then I kind of went on my path of uh, studying to be a biologist. And uh, along, the, along the way, I realized that, you know, what was exciting about believing in conspiracy theories was the quest for truth, the searching for answers. And I realized that that's what scientists do. They search for answers, but uh, they, they actually find answers. You know, they, they ask questions and then they, <laughs> <laughs> they ask questions and then they do experiments to find answers and then challenge the answers that they think they have to strengthen them further. And so I quick, I, not quickly, but I gradually went out of that mindset. I gradually went from being obsessed with conspiracy theories and, on the level of believing them to being obsessed with science and how do how do i now help people who are still conspiracy theorists realize what i took so long to realize uh is a big motivator for me yeah but it's not easy i mean that's really a hard sell to 
go into a situation and say, here's what I think. And, and whereas most people try to find more data that reinforce what they think to further substantiate and, you know, build the foundation for what they believe. Scientists are trained to say, here's what I think. Now let me see how it's wrong. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and so how much of that whole process, because, you know, you hold a PhD in, uh, in molecular biology or, mm-hmm. uh, and how, how did that process really help you build that uh, ability to be self-critical? Oh, well, anybody who goes through a PhD will experience the feeling of being wrong over and over again during their uh, dissertation research. Uh, And uh, going into the PhD, I was kind of, I had kind of, you know, left behind those conspiracy theory ideas. And uh, it honestly helped me during my uh, PhD to realize like, okay, I can be wrong. I can be emotionally unattached to the ideas I have and just have fun on the quest for, you know, testing those ideas to getting, getting to truth as close as I can to truth. But isn't that kind of freeing? Because I, I mean, I feel the same way. I know that I go into most situations saying I'm probably wrong, but here's where I'm at. (laughs) And, And then I find that when I do that with politics, when I do that with any situation, it really kind of disarms the people who you're arguing with or discussing with, because it says you're coming here saying, okay, the onus is on you to convince me of your standpoint, because I'm willing to change my opinion. And it's something that I think very few, few people are willing to do. And, you know, it's something that the PhD process does. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, coming into the PhD process with, um, writing a proposal and having all these plans for all these experiments you're going to do. Um, at that point, most students might think, okay, I'm, I'm going to do all these experiments and, uh, I'm going to, find out whether or not I'm right. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. But then you uh, go through the process and you find out just how wrong you have to be in order to <laughs> get to the right answer. I mean, going through lab meetings and committee meetings, you go over experiment after experiment, try approach after approach until you gradually, incrementally get to uh, what you think is the right answer. And then finally, in the last... like fourth, fifth years of your PhD, it culminates into big experiments that can wrap up your story. At least that's what happened for me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's me too. I was in my fourth year when we sat down at a committee meeting and realized that what I had planned to do was technically not possible. <laughs> and so, and, and I have mountains of data and it looked really cool, but we couldn't take it further to really do the uh, confirmatory experiments that just turned it from a suggestion to a definitive. And, and that was a big problem because here I had all these data and I was ready to go. And we made the decision, you know, should we just change projects in your fourth year or do you want to just graduate with what you got? And we, I, I spent three more years. But it was, but it was great because we got a couple really nice papers out of it. But it's that it's that process that I think is one that people need to feel more comfortable with the idea of being wrong and saying. And, and, and the beautiful part of it is, is it really lowers the expectations <laughs> because I go into situations and say, you know, help me understand why I don't get this. You know, I mean, and there's something so freeing about that. How, how do you think that um, that 
all of that training puts you in a better position to communicate with others today? Personally, my background combined with my training helps me to kind of understand the mindset of people who are hesitant uh, or full-blown conspiracy on this topic. I can understand the fact that science scientists aren't always good at communicating uh, their results, their findings, and that can be hard to interpret. Um, and I can also understand how conspiracy theories are often much more attractive than, than reality. Um, <laughs> and so I can kind of sympathize and approach these situations with like a, a mindset of, well, okay, this person is misguided and, or they're just misinformed or they're, they, they need someone to help them understand what the data really say. And so I can kind of approach it calmly, not get upset. And at the end of the day, no matter the outcome, just hope that my interaction with that person might set them towards that gradual process of unraveling that yarn ball that is the conspiracy mindset. Yeah, see, but that's why you're good at it. Because most scientists say, you idiot. Yeah, how yeah. could you right? How could you possibly believe something so stupid? And then you've got other people who are on the internet who are you know waving these uh, these very attractive stories that maybe appeal to some sort of foundational belief or some sort of um, interesting belief, you know, UFOs or Big Feet or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, all those kinds of things were the conspiracies that I grew up with, mm -hmm. but. You know, nowadays, these things are much more intricate, especially with COVID. Yeah. And it's so easy to make an attractive website as a person who uh, has very little training or authority, but make it look like you are well-trained and super authoritative. And, and so that's been, that's what we're up against, but you're countering that with very effective media. So what motivated you to start Debunk the Funk and what are some of the topics that you've covered overall? Yeah, so I mean, I I've always been really passionate about science communication and science advocacy. Those are two things I did on the side a lot uh, during my PhD, and it got to a point where you know I realized that it was going to be hard to have a career in either of those things. There's not there's just not much uh, not much not many jobs in the field of fields of advocacy or communication. Um, and if you want to be a science advocate, you probably have to move to DC and that wasn't going to work out for me. So I thought, well, okay, I want to do this, but, but how am I going to do it and still, you know, be a scientist? How, how am I going to do it and still have a separate career? So I thought, well, you know, I, I was once sucked into YouTube and I know that there's a community of debunkers there, but I don't think that there's really anybody super active right now covering vaccine stuff. So I thought, let me just put myself out there. I wanted, I've always wanted to try this. Let me try it. So I started my YouTube channel and just started covering anti-vaccine stuff. Uh, people like Del Big Tree, those guys. <laughs> and, and, uh, that was early. That was like January, 2020. And then COVID happened. Uh, COVID, COVID really, uh, picked up that year. So then my focus shifted from anti-vaccine stuff to all this COVID stuff that was coming out. And 
So it started as a, a hobby for me, and I just wanted to express this passion that I have for science communication. And it's it's done honestly better than I could have ever hoped. <laughs> well, how how well is it done? How many followers do you have, or downloads, or what are some of the metrics that you could share? Uh, I mean, I think I'm up to five thousand subscribers, which isn't huge, but it's it's a lot more than I thought I'd ever get. So, <laughs> but see, isn't that that's kind of fun because I this is what I like about you is that you know the, you throw it out there and you do a nice product and and I'll, I'll tell you from my experience with this podcast, I feel like I sit here talking to a microphone, it goes off in the ether, and you know nobody really listens. But then I'm walking through the airport and someone will go, "Aren't you the guy with the podcast?" Wow. <laughs> or or someone will tell me I was at a wedding and a friend of mine said that I had to listen to this podcast and I go, I know that guy. So it, it's, it's, uh, you know, I think it's that kind of hum humility that you're just going to put out a good product and you're not trying to be, you know, you're not going into this saying I'm an influencer, you know, I'm going to, but then you become a bigger influencer because of that. And I, I think that's, what's really cool about your, your, uh, production at w about so so it's been out for about a year and people where can they find it on youtube so i'm um on youtube uh as the channel name is debunk the funk with dr wilson um i'm also on twitter at debunk the funk and yeah, I was glad you shared that early because I want to come back to that in just a minute. We're talking with Dr. Dan Wilson. He's a professional molecular biologist, but uh, has a very strong commitment to science communication and runs the YouTube channel Debunk the Funk. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a minute. The average life of podcasts is 12 episodes. But the Talking Biotech Podcast continues to go strong into 300 episodes and its seventh year. With between five and 10,000 downloads a week, this podcast is now approaching 1.5 million downloads. Thanks for that. Now, despite the efforts of activists, some folks in SciComm and a certain university trying to pull the plug, this educational exercise surges forward into what promises to be the most exciting period for biotechnology. Biotech tools will have ended a pandemic, cured sickle cell disease, and offer new inroads in fighting cancer and neurodegenerative disease. We'll see crop solutions that aid sustainability and new discoveries that we can't even imagine now. Back when the podcast started, CRISPR was just a drawer in the refrigerator. So thank you for listening and sharing the podcast in your social media networks. There's a lot of excellent podcasts out there, and the fact that this pirate ship continues to sail with a larger audience is something we're truly grateful for. So thank you! The best times are yet to come, and count on the Talking Biotech podcast to help inform and clarify so that you can better share the beautiful science that will shape the future of medicine, agriculture, and conservation. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast, racing towards 300 episodes and entering the seventh year of podcasts. So thank you very much for that. It means a lot. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Dan Wilson. 
and he's a molecular biologist by training and by profession who has a very strong commitment to science communication, particularly in the area of vaccines, who's made a real impact during COVID, where we've had so much bad information distributed through the internet, and especially through YouTube and Twitter and you know social media in general. So let's talk about your current effort. You've been focusing on the disinformation dozen. Who is the disinformation dozen? Right, yeah. So the disinformation dozen um, are a group of 12 people who are identified by the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which is a nonprofit, uh, as the 12 people responsible for 65% of all anti-vaccine misinformation on the internet, which was really surprising that that much misinformation can come from such a small group of people. And a lot of them I'd actually, I was actually familiar with, but some I were not, I, I, I was not familiar with. And uh, so my current effort is marching through the disinformation dozen, debunking them and demonstrating why they deserve that title, because a lot of them will complain that they're not spreading disinformation, they're just asking questions. When if you actually look at their content, that's definitely not the case. They aren't just asking questions, because they're asking questions that have already been answered, but then they're giving the wrong answers to those questions. So. <laughs> no, that, that's especially true of Aaron Elizabeth. I mean, she's been, she does, she hides behind that. Hey, we're just asking questions here, you know, mm-hmm. but, but she is, I mean, probably the worst at that. Um, but when you're talking about debunking, let's, let's go, let's just follow up a little bit on that. When you talk about debunking, I think the scholarly literature tells us that the idea of taking bad information and kind of personally uh, tearing down that information isn't the most persuasive with the people who are their followers. Mm-hmm. So who are you really targeting here as your audience? I understand that the people who are entrenched in these ideas, the, the Aaron Elizabeths, the Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s, they're not, I'm not necessarily going to change their mind. But their followers uh, are impressionable. They People generally trust scientists. People generally value what scientists have to say. And if they have these charismatic people who are on the internet saying, scientists say this, and they admit this, and I've heard this about vaccines, or people with degrees themselves saying, the science says this and that, you need a counter voice to, uh, to help the people who are hesitant, who are on the fence, or who will just hear this stuff and not know how to counter it. And so that's what I'm trying to really offer here by going through the claims and trying to ease people's apprehension they might have at hearing these misinformed claims that sound really good on paper, but when you check them out or to an expert ear, they're, they're not. Yeah, so it's good to just kind of plant the seeds so that as they, if they do start to critically evaluate, or as time rolls on and you find out that these folks haven't really, uh, um, that their that their conspiratorial uh, claims never came true, right. you know, maybe this would turn it around. I think that that's a big part of this, though, is that the lifespan of misinformation or disinformation is so, um, it, that, it, that it's very powerful, yet people forget about it. 
And so years later, after bad information comes out, there's nobody saying, hey, whatever happened to? Right. And and so this, you know, is that maybe a good place for you to focus after COVID on on some of these issues and maybe some other areas of science? Yeah, you know, that's a good good point. I mean, I there are several claims that have come up during COVID that uh, where these missing these uh, these agents of disinformation, I guess, are making very specific claims, such as predicting that. Um, the COVID vaccine is going to result in horrible side effects uh, at some specific time. And then when you, uh, you know, look at that claim a month from now, or, you know, even now, you can can dismiss that even now, but if you look at it again a month from now and say, Hey, that still hasn't happened. It never came true. You know, how, how can this person be making accurate, believable predictions when their predictions are constantly wrong? Yeah, I wanted to really come up, talk about that a little bit, because we've seen in other areas that there are these uh, folks that have been described as unsinkable rubber duckies, that every time you manage to knock them down a peg, they seem to go up two and two pegs. And I think the, the, the issue is, is that, is that we just don't have the institutional, that information comes so fast that we don't have anybody going out and correcting. I'm actually writing something now that I hope will find some good press on all of the anti-GMO claims in the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. And some of the people who've made up big lies there because the, we don't go back and say, why was this never repeated? Where is this secret organ? You know, all the things we'll talk about there. But when we, when we talk about uh, the folks that you're covering and the disinformation doesn't, do you think that they really believe what they're saying or do you think they know they're lying? <laughs> so is it misinformation or is it intentional disinformation? So that. I'm a little different than a lot of people that I've talked to on this topic. Most people will say that they, they're sure they're lying and they know that they're lying. You know, I come in, I come into every debunk of every person thinking maybe they're misinformed. Maybe they actually believe what they're saying and they've been misled themselves. However, there are some people as I move further into this list who seem to dance around what is true so so with such finesse they they, <laughs> they come they, they just <clears throat> they reference information where it's like they had to have they had to have seen that what they're saying is wrong but they just cherry pick you know cut it out and place it so accurately in their argument to ignore everything that is true and just focus on this misinformed twisted bit of information that they're trying to push. So I don't know how many of them actually believe what they're saying. (laughs) It's tough for me to say that, but I do think that a good number of them know that what they're saying is wrong and that they're essentially grifters who are capitalizing on their misinformation and making money off of their, their following. Yeah, I'm with you. And I do the same thing. I give people the benefit of the doubt. But there are a couple folks here who do know better, who do have formal training, um, at least, you know, medical training or whatever. And it's at this point, it's a money grab. 
Mm-hmm. And and they have these followers who will buy the products, who will buy the the, bis, the disinformation, and uh, and you know some of these folks have thrown me under the bus for years. You go to their websites, punch their punch my name in, and you know and, and horrible stuff comes up, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's just it's. So it's kind of nice for me to see you do this. I get a little bit of a warm fuzzy. I crack a beer and watch it tear them down. It makes me, you know, kind of, it's kind of nice. Um, overall, though, I think, do you think that um, that this disinformation doesn't campaign? Have you seen a really strong response to it? And are you seeing the numbers really ratchet up during this particular push? Oh, for my channel? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think that the disinformation doesn't, videos are consistently getting uh, slightly more engagement than my normal videos. So yeah, I, I think that it's been well received so far among my viewers. That's cool. I, and the thing I really like about it is, you know, you're a pretty young guy, right? Like how old are you about? I'm 27. All right. So you're young, you're 27 years old, you're 27 <laughs> years old, which is exactly what we need. Like young people who are, who are kind of cool, who get, who, can you know good presence on the, on the on the video it just makes it so much better than me you know 54 year old guy who you know when you go online and read about me you wouldn't believe a word i said it's uh it's um you know i I've, i'm taking it to the grave that i've already been torn down by these folks so it's nice to have other people who are coming up in the ranks who are grabbing the reins of science communication to uh to deliver that good information in a credible way and you know it really makes me happy to see um to, to see you do this and I, I congratulate you over and over again on a great product so tell me again where we find you on youtube and where do we follow you on twitter so on youtube i'm uh, debunk the funk with dr wilson and on twitter i'm at debunk the funk i also have a facebook page uh doc wilson debunks ah cool and then what what was your uh, uh phd work in what, what kind of stuff did you do oh so uh i studied uh ribosome assembly oh cool so we uh you know the ribosomes make proteins and they're fascinating little nano machines they're like molecular 3D printers is what we would sometimes call them. And so the cell has to actually build them in order for them to work and work properly. So that's what we studied. We studied that whole process. I guess the one other question I would have for you is how do you see the future of science communication going, particularly amongst the you know old guard like me, the people who've been in science for a while, and how that might contrast against folks your age who are coming up in a very different environment of science communication? I'm really thankful that you do this uh, because even though I'm a young guy and you're an older guy, like I said before, people trust scientists generally. They generally value what scientists have to say. And I think that not enough of our colleagues are out there trying to uh, correct misinformation and actually engage with the people who are going to either benefit or not from the work that the scientific community puts out. And I think that's a problem in the scientific community, and I hope it changes. I think it is changing slowly that more people are getting engaged on Twitter or whatever social media that they have in order to communicate science better. Um, but it reminds me of the story uh, of uh, Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin. Um, for those who don't know, those are the two individuals who made the polio vaccines uh, back in the 50s. And they actually had a, a 
pretty intense rivalry where Jonas Salk was like the celebrity scientist who was working on the injected polio vaccine. And Albert Sabin was more of the traditional uh, ivory tower academic working on the oral polio vaccine. And Albert Sabin really went hard at Salk by criticizing him as a celebrity scientist, saying that scientists shouldn't be communicating with the media so much scientists should be in the lab writing journal, writing journal articles. And I think that sentiment is still fairly strong in science. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I've encountered opposition to what I do uh, from colleagues just by them simply saying it's a waste of time. I shouldn't be doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think, I think that, I, I think that's sad. I think that more scientists need to engage with the public because after all, we, well, most of us are paid by taxpayer money, uh, taxpayer funded grants. And so we owe it to people to make sure that the complicated work that we do is understood by the people who pay us to the level that, you know, they can appreciate that what we're doing is actually in the long run, helping public health. Uh, and I think it's really, it's just sad that more scientists aren't engaging. And I think it could be so much more effective if more scientists engaged. Yeah, I agree a thousand percent. People do have an innate interest in scientific issues if you make them attractive. And the truth is way stranger, way stranger and much more interesting than fiction. And I've always said, you know, that that communication is such an important part of what we can do as scientists. But I have colleagues who say, you waste your time, Falta. Why are you wasting your time doing this? You're mm-hmm. a decent scientist. You're a good researcher. You're a good administrator. Why do you waste your time uh, with a podcast or writing scientific stuff for the public? And I can't think of a better way to share what I do and how grateful I am to be able to do it. And I've been really disappointed by my university's resistance to me doing this. That I would think this would be a gold star in their extension efforts. But, you know, I've had, I've had folks in administration wag a finger in my face and say, not your job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and if you're going to do this, you do it as outside work. You file the appropriate paperwork. You, you uh, don't mention us or you, or you say it has nothing to do with the you know, university. It, I think it's completely backwards. And so until we have a change in how the universities and how our, our scientists in general, how the scientific institution sees these efforts as positive and helpful and count towards tenure and promotion and that kind of thing, I don't think you're going to see people jumping into this too, ex- being too excited to jump into it. I think, I think you're right. I think there needs to be a, a fundamental change in the uh, academic uh, culture. And I think that uh, hopefully COVID has been showing that that is necessary because people, the public in general, they like answers fast. But science is a slow, methodical <laughs> march. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, when, when there's an immediate threat like COVID, spreading very quickly around the world, people want answers fast. And so when those answers don't come fast, and sometimes they are wrong answers, sometimes we get things wrong and we have to yep. change our 
change our approach, that can, you know, make people more distrustful of science. But I think in that gap of distrust, you need effective communicators. You need a, a really coordinated, uh, strong effort from the scientific community to say, like, look, we're all experts. We all know what we're doing, and we're going to get things wrong. It's going to be tough, but, you know, just here's the data. Here's what it means. All these people over here saying these other things, that is <laughs> that is not what is right. That is not correct, you know. COVID is not an exosome. I don't know where that came from. I don't know how people think that. <laughs> yeah, there's some weird stuff going around nowadays, but it's it, it's one of these things that, let you know, not talking about COVID specifically, but I think the thing that will change scientists' willingness to engage in science communication and will change the universities are the folks in your generation. Uh, the grad students I have now, the undergraduates I have right now, I tell them, you want to write for a website, scientific website. You want to make videos. You want to make media. You want to co-host a podcast. Mm -hmm. Talk to me. And I get people who are excited to do it. And that means that you know they see this as a, a way for them to get into med school because they're going above and beyond where everybody else is just turning in an application. They're actually participating in public education of science. And they see this as a real benefit to their uh, CV. And I, can't, and I can't argue with that. And I think that the changes that we need to see are, in science communication are going to come from efforts like debunk the funk. You know, it, it's, it, it's so here, maybe here's one good last question is uh, when you decided to do this was your production, so the microphones, cameras, that kind of stuff, was that really hard for you to get together, or what did it take for you to be able to do what you do? Oh, it's it's pretty easy. Uh, I mean, uh, luckily I have uh, some friends who are uh, who, who went to school for film, so they knew sound and stuff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the microphone costs what sixty bucks. The HD webcam costs like. About the same, and a video editing software was already on my MacBook, so <laughs> it, it's it's super easy to do. It just takes practice to get good at. I mean, when I started, I was not super comfortable on camera. I didn't really know how to use my equipment, <clears throat> but you learn and you get better, and you become more comfortable with it, and it can turn into something really rewarding and really fun. Very good way to end this thing. I, I, I feel the same way. I waited years before I did a podcast and people told me I had to do it. They said, this is a medium that you are made for. And, and I re refused to do it because I didn't want a spotlight. I didn't want to be in. And when people are asking you every day to review a paper or review a grant mm -hmm. or, you know, be on a committee or go to travel to do this, I, I didn't want to turn down people and then have a podcast. You know what I mean? I didn't want yeah. people to think I was, you know, well, he didn't have time to review my paper, but he can talk about stupid science. Hell, you know, and eventually I had got over that. And, um, and, and it was actually, I was on with Joe Rogan who actually said, dude, you got to do it. And that's where things really changed. But that was, um, you know, that was uh, seven years ago now. And, uh, and, you know, great. And so the, 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 the bottom line is reason I bring that up is those who are listening, you can do it and you got to do it. 
and it's on all of us to turn this ship around. And I and I think you can use uh, Dr. Dan Wilson as a model, as an excellent way that you can create compelling media that helps address an important problem. So, Dr. Wilson, thank you very much for joining me today, and I look forward to the rest of the series. Thanks so much, Kevin. I really appreciate all those kind words. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Follow Dr. Wilson on YouTube. Darn it. <laughs> you know, let's uh, let's really elevate uh, his efforts and share the efforts of people who are going out of their way, going above and beyond the call of duty to produce outstanding media that informs others. Share it on your Facebook, your Twitter, your Instagram. Share it everywhere that you can share it. Because we not only have to keep encouraging Dr. Wilson to keep pumping out the good stuff here, but we also have to demonstrate to others that we will reward those who go the extra mile. I certainly have felt the rewards of this from all of you, and the numbers don't, uh, don't lie. They tell a story that we're continuing to grow, and that's mostly because of outstanding guests and a wonderful audience that has such wonderful loyalty to the podcast. And I'm truly grateful for that as we race into the seventh year and 300 <laughs> weekly episodes. So thank you very much. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but... It has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.